last month, um, my wife, uh, Rochelle, and I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Walt Disney Concert Hall here in, in, in downtown L.A. to hear a performance of Handel's Messiah. Um, it was just amazing. And, uh, and for those of you who may not be familiar with Handel's Messiah, um, it is just this incredibly beautiful piece of music that involves both soloists and a choir. And all the words of Messiah come from Scripture, come from the Bible, um, and lift up uh, our Lord through it. And, you know, the most famous part of Handel's Messiah is the Hallelujah Chorus, um, where the choir sings Hallelujah. I'm not going to sing the whole thing, but, uh, you know, um, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It is just this powerful chorus proclaiming um, our, our God. And I remember the first time that I went to a performance of Handel's Messiah um, at Lincoln Center in New York City, back when we lived in New York, at this, this, this amazing, huge concert hall there in the heart of Manhattan. And as the first notes of the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, Everyone in the audience rose to their feet, as, as, as we do traditionally at, at, at that. And just, I was in awe as I heard this amazing chorus praising God fill that entire concert hall. Well, our text today is kind of like that. It's kind of like the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, we, we, uh, we began this new uh, sermon series on the book of Colossians last Sunday uh, that, that I'm calling Centered in Christ focusing on this, this idea of being centered in Christ that, that Paul um, speaks about in Colossians. Uh, Paul wrote this letter, it's a letter to the church in the city of Colossae, to remind them that Jesus Christ is the center of who they are as believers and as a church. And in today's text, we're going to see that Paul outlines exactly why the Colossians and why we should be centered in Christ, because he is supreme. That is the proclamation in this text today. And kind of like the Hallelujah Chorus, um, this text is probably the most famous passage or one of the most famous passages in the book of Colossians. And it just exalts Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it speaks of his identity as fully God and fully man, his work um, of creation and his work of redemption. And so my sermon title today is Christ Supreme. Um, we're going to be looking at how Jesus Christ is supreme, that he is the highest and the greatest in his identity, in what he has done, and, um, and what that means for us as well. So today our text is uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23, which is on uh, page 833 in the Pew Bibles. And, uh, and today, I just this is such a powerful passage that I just wanted to ask us all to, can we stand together as I read this passage for us today, as we just hear God's word uh, proclaimed, this glorious passage from his word to us today. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything 
he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this powerful uh, proclamation of Jesus Christ, who is supreme over all things. Lord, as we hear, as we study this passage and and just catch a glimpse of, of the, the awe that you are leading us into as we, as we gaze upon Christ and all of his glory and all that, that he has done for us, Lord, that we would respond in worship to fall down before you, Lord, to be grateful and, and just for, for all that you have done for us and who you are and your worthiness of our worship. And so um, lead us now as we, as we study uh, your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. Last week, we, we looked at the first 14 verses of this letter, um, and we saw that, that in those first 14 verses, Paul, he gives thanks to, uh, for the Colossians. Um, he, he gives thanks for what, what Jesus is doing in them. We talked about the, the centrality of the gospel that he's reminding them of and talking about how the gospel is producing fruit in their lives, and he thanks God for that. And then he also prays for them. He tells them what he's praying for, that, that there would be even more and more fruit produced in their lives as a result of the gospel. Um, and at the end of that section, we saw Paul uh, talk about how God has rescued them from the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light, the, ki- the kingdom of, of his son talking about Jesus. And so in the very next verse, the, the verse in our, in our text, verse 15, Paul kind of launches off of that, right? Talking about the kingdom of his son and says, who is the son, right? Who is he, all, what, what, what is he like? And, and so he kind of launches into this very poetic, um, almost hymn-like section that exalts and praises Jesus, the son who is supreme. Um, and so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at how uh, this passage and how Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ in three different ways. The first is, is Christ supreme in his identity, in who he is. Um, the second is Christ supreme in creation, in the work of creation. And then the third is Christ supreme in new creation, um, in the work of redemption. So first, uh, Christ supreme in his identity. Uh, the, this, the very first verse in our text, verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, In that text, in in that verse, there are are two ideas that Paul is communicating here. Uh, The first is that Jesus is, Jesus the Son is the image of God. That's what he says, right? The image of the invisible God. Now, the the first place that we hear that phrase, the image of God, um, is used actually in the scripture reading that Cindy read, read for us, right? Back in Genesis 1. Um, 
where, where in Genesis 127, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so when God first created humanity, he created them in his image uh, to reflect his character and, and the attributes. He, he lifted them up as, 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 as separate from the rest of creation, right? In, in a special way of imaging, reflecting him. And so the image of God is something that God gives to all humans. Um, and that includes Jesus, who was born as a human being 2,000 years ago in, in Bethlehem as we celebrated, right? He's fully human. But notice that Paul here does not say that the son was created in the image of God. No, he says he is the image of the invisible God. That he is the, the image of God in a way that no other human is. Right? So he is, he, is, he is reflecting God as, as a human being, but he is the image of God in a way that is unique, that is separate from any other human. He is the perfect, supreme image of God. Um, he is the God-man, God in the flesh. Um, as Paul says later in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that all the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. That is something that only can be said about Jesus, the fullness of God in him. Now, the second thing that Paul says about Jesus' identity in verse 15 is that he is the firstborn over all creation. Uh, now, in the ancient world, the firstborn son was given a superior position in the family. Um, the, the, the firstborn was the one that, that inherited everything, right? So they had a superior position. And in the Old Testament, actually, um, Israel, the nation of Israel, is called God's firstborn. He, he refers to them in that way as, as sort of this, this um, special position. Um, King David, we studied David in the fall. Uh, David was actually the youngest in his family, but in Psalm 89, verse 27, uh, God says of David, and also this is kind of looking forward to the son of David, the Messiah. Um, he says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn. So, so God uses this, this, this language of the firstborn to talk about David, who wasn't literally the firstborn in his family, right? But what, so what, what the language of the firstborn is really all about is one's position and one's authority, and so when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's not saying that Jesus was the first being that God created, which is what some cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, claim, how they misinterpret this, this verse. Um, as we're going to see in just a minute, Paul says that everything was created by and through Jesus. So he is not created. He is eternal. He's eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But what Paul is saying when he uses this language of, of the firstborn is that Jesus holds a supreme position in relation to all of creation. That he has this position and authority of the firstborn, what the firstborn had in, in the families at then. Um, back in, in Genesis 1, again, the, the, the scripture reading we heard, uh, God told Adam and Eve to rule over all creation, right? He gave them, he said, rule over it um, as his image bearers. But here, Paul says that Jesus rules in a supreme way, that he is the firstborn. He is, he is above any other human being. Um, and so he is supreme in his identity as the perfect supreme human, but more than that, as God himself, as God the Son, God in the flesh. 
Uh, he is the supreme image of the invisible God. So that's, where we, that's the first thing we see uh, proclaimed in this passage is, is Christ supreme in his identity as, as uniquely both God and man. The next thing that we, that we see Paul talk about in Christ's supremacy is Christ supreme in creation. That, that Christ is supreme in the act of creation. Paul says that, that the Son who, who walked here on earth as Jesus of Nazareth that this one was involved in the creation of the universe, right? He says in, in, in 16, he says, for by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so here it's clear that Paul is going way beyond talking about Jesus as just the supreme human, to actually say that all things were created by him. That, that, that he's actually identifying Jesus as the creator, right? That, 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 that God created through Jesus in the beginning. He spoke, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. We saw that a few weeks ago in John 1. And so Jesus, he is the agent of creation. All things are created by him. And then he also says that all things were created for him, that actually we all and all of creation was created ultimately for Jesus, for his glory, uh, to find our fulfillment in him. That, that all of our lives and all of creation are ultimately for him. Now, it is, it's hard for us to, to fully understand how radical this idea would have been in Paul's day. When Paul wrote this letter and was proclaiming these things about Jesus— uh, Paul was Jewish, um, and one of the key beliefs in Judaism is that there is one God, right? The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who called Abraham and formed the nation of Israel, the God who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And here, what Paul is doing is, is he is identifying the man, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as the same creator God, as the one God who created everything. That was a bold claim to make. It was something that was, that was, it was scandalous. This is why the Christians were persecuted by, by the Jews at the time, right? And so in verse 17, Paul continues. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he says that, that, that Christ existed before everything else. He's before all things. You know, he existed before everything was created. He, he is above and, and, and before everything. And guess what? Who, who that's true of? It's only true of God right? himself. Um, and even now, he says that all things hold together only in Christ. So, so Jesus is not only involved in the creation of the universe, but he is continually involved in sustaining the universe but all things hold together in him. One, one commentator that I was reading this week puts it this way. He says, without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. And he goes on to point out that this is a startling claim that a man who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things are held together. Think about that. The gravity of that claim. It is a radical claim, but it is exactly what Paul is saying here. That Jesus Christ is, is not only the supreme human, but he is the supreme creator. 
and sustainer of the universe, God himself. Now, I recognize that, that for some people, this claim is really hard to believe. You know, some people in our world might be willing to believe that, that Jesus was a good man, that he was maybe a good teacher. Uh, they might even believe that Jesus is the supreme human, that, that, that he was closer to God than any other person. But, but for some people, it just seems so hard to believe that Jesus could actually be God, that all things were created through him and all things hold together in him. But you have to understand that it would have also been really hard for a Jew like Paul to believe this, too. This would have been really hard for him to believe. And yet, he did. He believed it, and he affirmed it, and he proclaimed it. Why? What was it about Jesus that led Paul and those early Christians to proclaim that Jesus was, in fact, God? That he was God in the flesh? Well, as we go into this, this third and final point of the supremacy of Christ, we're going to talk about his supremacy now in new creation. It's going to help us understand why Paul believed that Jesus was God himself, why it actually makes sense for us to believe it too, um, even for, for those that may, it may be hard to, to, to fully believe. So let's look now at this third point, which is Christ supreme in new creation. He is supreme in creation. He's also supreme in the new creation, in redemption. Paul says that there was a particular reason why God would choose to become a human being in Jesus Christ. In verses 19 and 20, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What Paul is proclaiming here is that God wanted to reconcile all things to himself. He wanted to make peace. And the way that he did that was through Christ, was through having all of his fullness dwell in him. And so what I want to unpack for us here is what Paul says in, in exactly how did God reconcile the world to himself through Christ? Because that might help us understand why it is that God would become flesh and, and why we should believe that Jesus was, in fact, God. Well, Paul goes on in verse 21 to say to the Colossians, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is the starting point for understanding why God would choose to become a human being and why Paul believed that Jesus was this particular human, that he was God in the flesh. It starts with the reality that the human race is alienated from God, that we are his enemies because of our evil behavior. Now, now for some people, this, this might sound a little extreme. I mean, yeah, we, we all do wrong things from time to time, but does that make us enemies of God? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Paul's just talking about the Colossians. Maybe they were enemies of God. Maybe they were really bad. They had some really evil behavior. But in his letter to the Romans, Paul says, we were God's enemies. So he doesn't let any of us get off the hook. <laughs> not just the Colossians, not, not just you are enemies. We were all enemies. It's true of the whole human race. Um, let's go back again to Genesis 1, that, that passage that we heard earlier. God creates humans in his image, as we talked about. Uh, you know, they were, they were his kids. He gave the whole earth to them where they could rule, they could work, they could play, they could enjoy. And he told them, you can eat from 
all the trees in this garden except for just one. Since you can eat from all of them. Go, add it, enjoy it, enjoy my creation, right? It's all yours. I'm just holding back this one. And what he was doing there was he was wanting them to trust him. He was wanting them to find their fulfillment in his abundant provision for them, right? He had provided abundantly for them. But what did our, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, do? They questioned God's goodness. They questioned why from the, from the lie of the serpent, right? Why would God keep one tree from them? And they decided to walk away from the Father's abundant provision and, and decide they're going to seek fulfillment in, in their plan by going after their own way. And what they were doing in that moment is they were seeing God as their enemy. They were seeing God as someone who is trying to keep something from them, right? So who is, who is trying to withhold something good. And, and so they treated God as their enemy and rebelled against him. And the result was alienation, as Paul says, separation from the God who had made them, the God who loved them, the God who had given them everything. You know, when I was in elementary school, uh, there was one Christmas when I knew I found out that my parents hid our Christmas presents in the closet in their bedroom. And I knew that I should not look in that closet, but I was just too curious to see what I had gotten. And so one afternoon, I, I snuck into their room and I opened the closet and I saw this huge bag of presents. And, and, and one of the presents I saw in there was this toy called a pogo ball. Uh, this is back from the 80s. Uh, and it was, it was sitting there on top, this thing you could, you know, put your feet on the ball and bounce on this thing. And, and I just knew that was for me. But I immediately felt this huge sense of guilt as I looked into their closet and I saw, oh boy, that's one of the presents I think I'm going to be getting. And so sure enough, when Christmas Eve rolled around, I saw a gift wrapped in the tree that was for me, that was clearly in that shape, the shape of that pogo ball with a tag on it, right, for me. And you know what? I don't remember anything I got that Christmas except that pogo ball. Because when I unwrapped it, I, I tried to act surprised and excited. But you know what? I just felt inside, I just felt so much guilt because I had looked at it ahead of time. And you know what? I hardly ever played with that thing because I felt so guilty for having looked at it ahead of time. You see, my parents, they wanted to give me some wonderful gifts that Christmas. They wanted to give me that wonderful gift that Christmas. But in order for me to receive it as in the way that it was intended as a good gift, I needed to trust in their timing. I needed to trust and wait until Christmas Eve to open them. And so when I took things into my own hands and I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it on my timing, right? What did it do? It actually ruined the goodness of the gift. Instead of feeling loved my, by my parents, I was instead consumed with feelings of guilt. And, and what did it do? It actually created a sense of alienation from my parents, right? I, didn't, I, didn't, I wouldn't want to go to them to, to say, thank you for this amazing gift. I felt so guilty that I, I kept my distance, right? Our sin creates alienation, and ever since the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what's been happening between humanity and God. We've been relating to God like this, and, and we do it all the time. We question God's goodness. We question God's timing. We focus on the one tree that he tells us not to eat from and ignore all the other good trees that he has given to us to eat from. 
we hear him tell us that, that only he will fulfill us. And only when we follow his, his word, his law. But, but guess what? We, we constantly try to find fulfillment in other places. And so we see God as our enemy. As someone who wants to ruin our fun. As someone who doesn't really care about us. Who's looking to punish us. And so we rebel against him. We, we, we go our own way. We take things into our own hands. We, we do things in our own timing rather than trusting on his timing. And the end result is the same We are alienated from him, separated from the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who wants to shower us with good things. But we're alienated because of our sin. But Paul says, that is what you were. He goes on in verse 22 to say, but now, he says, right, once you were alienated from God or enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but then he says, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God has made a way to reconcile us to himself. To reconcile means to bring back together, to restore the relationship, to remove the thing that was blocking the relationship. God made a way to to end the alienation to bridge that separation. And Paul says that God did this how? By Christ's physical body through death. Earlier in verse 20, he said he accomplished this reconciliation by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so so Paul points to who? To Jesus as the one who has made this reconciliation possible. And how did he make it possible? It was specifically, Paul says, because of Jesus' death on the cross. It was his blood as the means through which God made humanity, brought humanity back into relationship with himself. So why is that? How does Jesus' death on the cross reconcile us to God? Well, the thing that's alienated us from God is our rebellion. What the Bible calls sin, what alienated me from my parents was my rebellion, right? Choosing to do things my own way. And that is what what creates a separation between us and God. So for God to reconcile us to himself, God needed to remove the sin that was separating us from him. But in order to do that and to, to remain being a fair and just God, he had to carry out the fair and just penalty for that sin and rebellion, which is, Paul says, death. That is what all of humanity deserves for our rebellion against God. In order to bring us back into relationship with himself, God knew that the only way he could do this was to take our sin, our rebellion upon himself and to pay the penalty of death for us in our place. And so this, brothers and sisters, is why the God of the universe, the creator, became a human being. So that he could take our sin upon himself as one of us, as a human, in our place, to pay the price for that sin for us, so that we don't have to pay it. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. On the cross, God both judged all sin, and God was judged for all sin. Imagine a a judge pronouncing a verdict upon a young woman. And he says, I find you guilty, and I fine you $10,000. 
And then the judge gets up from his seat, he takes off his robe, he walks down from the bench, and he writes a check for $10,000. And he turns to the courtroom and he says, this is my daughter whom I love. I will pay the fine for her. The judge is being just in pronouncing the verdict and the punishment, but he is also being merciful by choosing to pay the fine for his daughter. That's what God did in order to reconcile us to himself. He both pronounced the verdict, but then he paid the price of that verdict in our place for us. And the result, the end result, is that now, Paul says, he can present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That because he's taken away our sin, because he's paid the penalty for us, now we are seen as holy, as without blemish, as free from accusation. We have a restored relationship with him just like it was in the beginning. And so in other words, it's like God has accomplished a whole new act of creation, right? Not only is Christ supreme in the original creation, but he is now supreme in a new creation, in a new thing that he has done for us. And so the reason that Paul and the other early Christians made the claim that the man Jesus Christ was actually the creator God in the flesh is because they recognized that what Jesus did on the cross in taking our sin, in bearing our punishment, and then rising to new life, that was something that only God could do. That's something that only God could do was to do all of that, right? And so if Jesus did that, then guess what? Who is Jesus? He is God. He is God in the flesh because only God could accomplish that salvation for us. Only God could break down the alienation and separation that exists between us and him. And he did it by entering our world as a human, taking our place and opening up this new reality for us. And so what does all this mean for us today? Well, in verse 23, Paul says that all of this is true for you if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So our response to this message about Christ's supremacy in his identity and in, in creation and in his new creation, what is the response? It is faith. It is faith. It is believing that it's true and putting our trust in Christ to do what he has said that he will do. Now, if this message, if this whole message is, is new to you, if you find it really hard to believe that it's really true, I just want to ask you to consider what Paul is saying here. To consider the possibility that, that there is a God who created everything, who loves you, and who's made a way to bring you into relationship with him. That he actually wants to do that in your life. And maybe you find yourself believing this message, maybe even for the first time, and, and desiring to be reconciled to God. Maybe you recognize that there is this alienation that exists in your heart. And and you want to be presented as holy and free from accusation. And you recognize, I, I can't do that in myself. And if that's you, know that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary to do that. To reconcile you to God. That you simply receive it as a gift and believe it. 
And if that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service to share more about what God has done for you. And maybe you have experienced reconciliation with God and, and you believe that Christ has accomplished all this through his death on the cross. And if that's you, hear Paul's words to continue in your faith. Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Don't move away from the gospel. Don't move away from this great hope that you have been given in Christ and what he's done for you. Continue in your faith. We're going to come back to this theme in future weeks because a large part of, of why Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae was to, to encourage them to continue in their faith, to continue in the gospel, to continue to keep Christ at the center. Because here's the truth, brothers and sisters, it is so easy to drift from the center. It is so easy to drift away from Christ being supreme. You know, earlier this week, as I was studying this passage, verse 18 is the one that actually hit me hard. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And you know what I realized is that I don't always acknowledge Christ as supreme in everything in my life. You know, if I'm honest, sometimes I am so focused on myself and I'm wanting to make myself more and more supreme in my life. You know, I, I focus on my accomplishments or my failures and I'm, and I'm wanting people to praise me or I'm wanting more influence. And I realize that so often I am not putting Christ at the center, but I'm putting myself there. And, and as I recognized that this week, I just, I felt convicted and ashamed. Here I am, the pastor that's supposed to be proclaiming Christ supreme. And, and I'm recognizing that I struggle with that in my own life. And I confessed that to God. I said, Lord, I'm, I'm not putting you supreme. I, I, I need to confess that to you. And then I kept reading. And I heard God say to me, Andy, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, because of your putting yourself first in your life rather than me, but then he went on to say, but, but now he has reconciled you. He's reconciled me by Christ's physical body through death to present you and me holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And when I heard those words proclaimed to me, I felt the weight of my sin and shame lift as I recognized that although I had failed to make Christ supreme in my life, he had forgiven me for that. He paid the price for that. And instead, he was presenting me as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, even though I knew that I didn't deserve that. And as I heard this amazing good news that was for me and for you, guess what it did? It made me praise and exalt my Savior, Jesus Christ, for doing this for me. And what it did was it made me take my eyes off myself and put them on him. Because he 
is the one who has saved me, the one who has forgiven me. He alone is worthy of praise. And I'm so thankful that he has saved me because I need it desperately. And so, brothers and sisters, let us praise our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is supreme in all of these ways. The one who is so exalted and the one who knows each and every one of us by name. And the one who loves us and who has died for us, who has done everything to save us. Man, let's make him supreme in everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge that, that so often we, we do not acknowledge you in the place that you deserve in our lives as, as supreme, as the one that really all this world, all this whole life is all about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about you and your glory. All things were created for you. And yet you are the God who who is so supreme and who has then chosen to share your glory with us. We who are sinners, we who, who are enemies of yours, who, who, who are alienated away from you in our sin, and you come near to us and you proclaim that we are holy, that we are blameless, that we are free from accusation because, because of you, Jesus. Because you have paid for our sin in full. You have reconciled us to yourself. And you invite us into your glory. Into heaven. Into your eternal life. Which we don't deserve, Lord. But you've done it for us. And so all we can say is, Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy, Lord, because you have saved us. We owe everything to you. And so, Jesus, how can we not exalt you as supreme over everything in our lives. For you are the one who has saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.